Well, this is fantastic, isn't it? Uh, can I just add to say how wonderful it is um, all to be together uh, again like this? And uh, yeah, please do be praying. Please be praying that the Lord would lift the coronavirus across Australia, across the world, uh, that vaccines and things like that would work, uh, that restrictions would be eased, and that uh, the spread of the gospel would go out unhindered in Africa, across our nation. Please be praying that all God's people from our church would, would get back, would come back together, would be solid in fellowship. Um, please be praying that um, more people would join us over the summer, uh, over, over Christmas and on into the new year. Come to know Jesus, grow in Jesus. Please be praying all these things. And it's wonderful this morning that we come together around um, this psalm, uh, the longest chapter in the whole Bible. Um, so I'm going to go through it verse by verse. Uh, take about eight hours, I think, uh, so strap in. No, a, a wonderful chapter in the Bible about the Bible and how wonderful the Bible is, um, something uh, so core to us. So let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can be together like this this morning. Uh, please, we ask, open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. Amen. I was 17 years old. I was walking down the road with my mate Pete. It was the summer holiday, so we were just chilling, enjoying life. Um, and I turned to him and I said, Hey, Pete, in Mark's gospel, when Jesus says, and I, and I can't remember exactly what I was asking, but when Jesus says, What did he mean? And my friend Pete did this sort of double take. He, he tried to hide it, he tried to keep the shock from his face, um, but he, he, he was shocked. See, three months earlier, I'd become a Christian, but I hadn't told anyone. And my mate Pete was the guy who was trying to help me become a Christian. He's the one who'd been inviting me to the Christian lunch group and along uh, to church. And in fact, the night I became a Christian, he was the one who invited me to church. I'd been to church that night. I'd heard the gospel. I'd met it, heard it many times. But for some reason, that got, night, God opened my heart and I understood what Jesus had done for me, his love for me. And I gave my life to him and became a Christian. Now, I was afraid to tell anyone because I was, wasn't sure, had I done it right? Did I say the prayer right? Had I really? And I also didn't know it was important to tell anyone. So here I was three months later. No one knew I was a Christian. As I'm walking down the road with my mate who tried to help me become a Christian. And I asked him a question about something in Mark's gospel. So he tried as calmly as he could to say, oh, you've been reading Mark's gospel, have you? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I started in Genesis. I found that hard. So I sort of came to Matthew and I read Matthew and now I'm reading Mark. <laughs> Because what had happened to me at the moment I was converted was the Word of God to me became the Word of God, which is what it always was. It's just I received it as it actually is, the Word of God. This was no longer just a book. It was my God speaking to me. It was His voice to me, His desires for me, His commands for me, and I would obey it because it was him speaking to me. Nobody told me that I was supposed to read the Bible if I was a Christian. I just started to read it. I just wanted to read it. It wasn't until about a month after walking along the road with Pete that I went to a Christian camp that he invited me to, and they talked about how important and good it is to read the Bible each day and pray each day and get along to church and join a youth group and get involved in a Bible study group, and I just did all those things, just locked them in one after the other, and they were a great benefit and blessing. But I just started the reading the Bible way before that because in my heart I knew somehow this was the voice of my God to me, even if I couldn't have actually articulated that. Now everyone has a different conversion story. Everyone has different growth in the Christian life. But what is the same for all God's people is this. At conversion, whether your conversion happens later in life, you live many years not as a Christian, or whether it happens um, because you're part of a Christian family and you can never pinpoint exactly where that was. But what happens for all Christians 
is the Word of God becomes to you the Word of God, which is always what it was, but is you receive it as it actually is, the Word of God. God miraculously causes you to be born again in such a way that you have a new heart and you now love God's Word and want to obey it. It, it comes alive. It is no longer just a book to us if we are Christians. It is God speaking to us. It is my Father's Word to me. It is God's desires and His commands for me that are to be obeyed. It's not possible to be a Christian and have no love for God's Word, no desire for it, no desire to obey it. If it is the case for you, it's likely you have not become a Christian yet. However, it is possible to be a Christian and have an underdeveloped love, an underdeveloped desire, an underdeveloped reverence for God's Word, or to have once had these things burning brightly like a bright flame, but to have let that flame gutter and splutter and diminish and shrink and erode over time, your love, your desire, your reverence for God's Word to have atrophied. There are moments when we come to God's Word, like Psalm 119, where the author expresses deep desires and delights, but if we're honest in our heart of hearts, what we have to say is, I don't feel exactly the same things as he does. They sort of clang with me. There's sort of a disconnect. They're a bit foreign. They're a bit alien. There are places in the Bible where our desires and loves and delights are not the same as those expressed in the Word of God. And when we notice that, it usually means there's a problem with me. And I think at least my experience, I think one of those moments is often in Psalm 119. Do I love and enjoy and delight in and reverence the Word of God like this man does? For example, come with me, verse 97. Nice to hear pages rustling, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Oh, I love your law. I, I think about it all the time. 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. Is that really my heart and attitude towards God's word? Psalm 119 is a meditation on the word of God and its delights. Rolling over and over similar thoughts, building adding, reflecting, meditating on how wonderful God's word is and how much the psalmist delights in it. And we get to watch this man meditate on God's word in front of us. And the thing that I say, I find confronting is this, is that how I feel about God's word? Is that my heart towards God's word or am I lacking? So what we're going to do together this morning is, let me give you a general brief introduction to Psalm 119, how it's structured and some, a couple of thoughts. But then the main thing we're going to do is think about two things. One, what is the psalmist's heart towards the Word of God? And two, what is it about the Word of God that has so captured the psalmist's heart? And then we'll apply it to ourselves together. But before we jump into these two main things, a brief word about the world of Psalm 119. Just a couple of short things. One, this is an acrostic poem. Um, generally in our society, serious poetry is not acrostic. You know, Graham. I can't even do it. <laughs> it's something we did in primary school. But in Hebrew poetry, it is a thing. It's, it's, it's a number of the Psalms are acrostic poems. Poems. I'm told I have too broad an accent and I say palms. Poems. <laughs> Psalm, I have to bring back my English side. Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem 
that goes through each of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which is 22 letters. And each stanza begins, um, has a letter of that alphabet. So you can see Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalet, Hey, Vav at the top of each of those stanzas. And what you find is in each of those stanzas, 22 stanzas, there's eight verses. Each of those eight verses begins with the letter for that stanza. So the first eight verses are all Aleph, the second eight verses are all Bait. So you can see straight away this is a highly crafted poem, highly crafted around the alphabet, exploring different ways to speak about God's word and the psalmist's love for it. It's not a logical argument about what God's word is. It's not a theology of God's word. It's a meditation on God's word, rolling it over, thinking about it crafting it into a beautiful artwork. And the acrostic nature of the poem gives the sense, this is the A to Z of God's Word. This is an alphabet filled with the Word of God. And it also helps to memorise it. Much easier if all the first eight verses start with A and the second eight verses start with B and, and so forth. Easier in the Hebrew than in the English. Second thing to notice about this psalm. There's a number of different words that are used to refer to God's Word. There's eight really big key ones, eight synonyms for the Word of God, each with a slightly different flavour or meaning, but all overlapping with each other, so that together you get a full picture of what God's Word is. And the eight words are these, law, testimonies, in our Bible often translated statutes, but testimonies probably more helpful, precepts, decrees, commands, ordinances, sometimes translated decrees, word, one of the really big ones, and promise. Each synonym, slightly different flavour, but all together give us a full picture of what God's word is. And it's worth noting just around the word law there, it has a broader meaning than we tend to think. Our mind, as soon as we hear law, thinks of command, rules, uh, the Ten Commandments, that sort of thing. But law in Hebrew means instruction means teaching. And so verse 1, those who walk according to the instruction of the Lord, the teaching of the Lord. Uh, the whole Old Testament is sometimes called the law, uh, the teaching of God. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, are also sometimes called the law, the teaching of God. And so the law of God is the instruction of God or the teaching of God, which is much broader and then includes the narrower laws which are the commandments. And sometimes in Psalm 19, it talks about laws, and there, there it's more specifically usually talking about commandments. So that's very brief, but that's a quick intro to the psalm. So now back to the, the key main things. Firstly, what is the psalmist's heart towards God's word? As I said before, this is his meditation on the word of God, and we get to watch firsthand his emotions, his attitude, his heart towards it. Now, so much that could be said, but three main categories, and the first is this. The psalmist's heart towards God's word is love and delight. This guy loves God's word. For him, reading this word is not a duty he must perform. For him, reading this word is not something that uh, is required to do, and he's merely doing it to be obedient to God. It's not just that he does the bare minimum that he's required so that he can then step away and do the things that he really wants to do in life. No, no, no. Reading and thinking about God's word is the thing he really wants to do. He loves God's word. Have a look at verse 35. 
Direct me in your path, the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Delight. Verse 47. For I delight in your commands because I love them. Verse 48. I reach out for your commands, which I love, that I might meditate on them. Verse 97. Move a little further. Oh, how I love your instruction. I meditate on it all day long. He loves it. He delights in it. He meditates on it. Verse 103. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. To him, the word of God is the sweetest things. Yum, 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 yum. Yum, 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 yum. He enjoys the word of God. Can you imagine coming into a room and you find one of your kids and they're reading the Bible. You know they've already had their devotional Bible reading time that day and you say to them, what are you reading? Matthew. And you think, oh, they must be preparing Matthew for their EV kids um, Bible study. And you say, oh, why, why are you reading Matthew? And they say, because I like it. Wow, because I like it. Wouldn't it be even more amazing if our kids came into the room and they found us reading the Bible? Just because we liked it. Because God's word was sweet to us. And we just really enjoyed reading them. Verse 127. Because I love your commands more than gold, more than pure gold. For this man, God's word is more precious to him than riches, than his retirement savings, than his assets, than his share portfolio, than the prospect of great wealth. He would give all that up for a second to have the voice of God, the word of God to him. To this man, God's word is precious and cherished and delighted in and loved. You can imagine this man lying on his bed at night and he's thinking about the next day. Is there anything I'm looking forward to the, the next day? Oh, I get to read my Bible and think about what it says. <laughs> what am I lying on my bed thinking about, <laughs> looking forward to the next day? Probably shows something that, of what I really care about and delight in. Love and delight. Second, the psalmist's heart towards God is not only of love and delight, but of deep reverence for God's word. You see it throughout the psalm, reverence, awe of God's word. He says things about the word of God like, it is righteous, it is dependable, it is unshakable, it is inexhaustible, because the God who is revealed in his word is awesome. Just have a look at one verse, 120. Come with me there. My flesh trembles in fear of you, I stand in awe of your laws. Awe of your laws. Verses 89 to 91, 161, you can write those down, go there later, there's plenty of others. And this reverence for God's word issues in him wanting and being, seeking to be obedient to God. Come right back to the beginning, verse 5. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I'll praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. And so many verses like that. Verse 34, verses 100, 101, 102. He, he regularly through the psalm commits to, I will be obedient to your word, God. And regularly through the psalm, ask God, please God, help me to love and be obedient to your word. He's committed to obeying God's word. 
and ask God for help to be obedient to it. To this man, God's word is to be revered, is to be held in awe, is to be obeyed, for it is the word of the awesome God to him, to us. Third, the psalmist's heart towards the word is not only love and delight, not only deep reverence and obedience to God's word, but also trust, hope. Come with me to verse 49. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. My comfort in, this, in my suffering is this, your promise preserves my life. The promise of God is the thing that brings and preserves life. There's a deep connection between those uh, things. For this man, the promises of God sustain him through the ups and downs. He trusts God's word to him. He puts his hope in God's promises to him. Now, it's possible to hear all this and think, this guy is not living in the real world. That's fine for someone who doesn't really know the stresses and strains of life, who has it easy, who has plenty of time to just read and think about the Bible. That's not my life. (laughs) My life is super stressful, super busy. It's fine for someone who lives in Israel, who's surrounded by all the Israelites and they all love the Bible and they talk about it all together and they're supportive and they encourage each other. That's not what I get in my world, from my family, from my friends. But can I say, that's not actually the case. This guy is not someone who is sitting in their ivory tower far from the troubles of life, just reading and reflecting and thinking about God's word. This is not a guy who is sitting on a tropical beach somewhere and in between dips in the ocean and swims, he comes and sits under a palm tree and opens his Bible and reflects and journals on it and thinks about how beautiful and wonderful it is. This is not a guy who's surrounded by a bunch of Israelites who love the word and who are talking about it and revere it and obey it. This is a guy who, just like us, is in the real world in in the trenches. He lives in a society that does not love God, does not love God's word, And he is deeply, deeply discouraged by how people treat him and how people treat his God and and God's word. Uh, Let me whip through. You don't need to follow me here, but verse 25. I am laid low in the dust, he can say. Preserve my life according to your word. Verse 69. Though the arrogant have smeared me with lies. Man, have have you had people lie about you? Though the arrogant smear me with lies, I keep your precepts with all my heart. Uh, Verse 85, the arrogant dig pits to entrap me, contrary to your law. Verse 87, they almost wiped me from the earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. Verse 95, the wicked are waiting to destroy me, but I will ponder your statutes. Now this to me sounds like a guy who is in a tough place, living in the real world. People don't love him, his God, don't love God's word, he's copying it. And yet in the midst of all this, where does he turn? The word of God. And even in his difficulty, it still fills him with love and delight, reverence and obedience, trust and hope. This is what is in the psalmist's heart towards God. But why? What is it about God's word that has so captured the psalmist's heart? And again, there's so much that could be said, but I'm going to say four key things. What is it about God's word that has so captured the psalmist's heart? One, God's word is life. Come with me to verse 144. And there's so many verses for all of these I could go to, but I'm just going to do one or two for each. 144. Your statutes are always righteous. Give me understanding that I may live. Understanding the word of God 
and, and life are connected together. 154. Defend my cause and redeem me. Preserve my life according to your promise. The promise of God has the power to preserve life. Life is tied to the promises of God and living in line with God's word. Death is to not trust the promise of God and to live out of step with God's word. When our society thinks about real life, God is not a part of it. Abundant life, rich life. Our society never associate with God, who is perceived as the life, the joy killer, the downer, the one who doesn't care whether we live, the one who is distant. In their view, life is certainly not connected with trusting promises in an old book, is certainly not connected with obeying God's word. But according to God's word, God is life. And to be cut off from God is to be cut off from life. And the way we connect to God is through his word. And so, this is our very life. Believing the promises of God in his word and keeping in step with his word is life. Some may walk around on this planet physically looking alive and healthy and well, but disconnected from God through his word, they are actually dead spiritually dead they're the tree that's been taken out of the ground uprooted sitting on the concrete it may look alive but actually it's disconnected from the source of life it is dead dying and ultimately will totally die if someone lives their life disconnected from god's word they are dead and will eternally be dead unless god enables them to come to his word and have life this is our very life that's the first thing second God's word is light. Come with me to verse 99. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. And down to verse 105, which I think is probably the most well-known verse in, in Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. God's word is light. It reveals. It gives sight. It gives insight. It shows reality so that we can live in step with reality. It provides mental stability, wisdom for life. Often our world caricatures Christians as narrow-minded, blinkered, dogmatic, unthinking, who, 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 who don't want to face reality so we can just keep believing our little fairy tale <laughs> but not according to god's word it is the light by which we see the world clearly and rightly without it we are blind this is our sight and insight and clarity of vision and mental stability and wisdom i know many um kids christian kids who go to school and have very little knowledge about lots of subjects and lots of things of the world and the teachers are knowledgeable about these things and teach the kids very rightly. But when it comes to actually understanding reality, to actually knowing who God is and how this universe is shaped and what eternity is life and what lies beyond, the teachers are the ones who are utterly blind and is their young students who are wise beyond measuring because they see reality. Because for them... The word of God is the light that enables them to see reality clearly and live in step with it. God's word is light. Life, light, God's word brings is freedom. Verse 45. 
I will walk about in freedom, for I've sought out your precepts. And there's a bunch of others. Freedom and living according to precepts doesn't sound like they go together. But freedom is to live God's way. Freedom is to understand reality clearly and to live rightly in it. Freedom is to be free from the power of sin to live God's way. When our world thinks of freedom, it thinks no restraints. Do whatever you want to do. It's the opposite of having a book tell you what to do. It's the opposite of having laws and commands and precepts. How repressive, how enslaving your Bible is. But not according to God's word. It's freedom. Freedom to live God's way, the God who loves us, the God who has designed us, the God who knows what is best for us and so tells us the best way to live. Freedom to live God's way. Freedom of understanding so we can see the world clearly and no longer be enslaved by the lies of the devil and that society tells us. Freedom from the power of sin so that I can actually live God's way and not the way that is harmful for me, damaging to others, unfaithful to God. Freedom to live knowing God. Freedom. Why why has the word of God so captured this, this man's heart? Because it is life. Because it is light. Because it is freedom. And finally, because God's word is God to us. The reason that God's word gives life and light and freedom, and the reason that the psalmist loves it and delights in it, and reverences it and obeys it and trusts it and finds his hope in it, is all because it is God to him, to us. The psalmist right throughout interacts with the word of God like it is God because it is God to him. His relationship, our relationship with God is through this word. There is no other means of access to our relationship with God other than his word. And so it gives us life because God gives us life. It gives us light because God gives us light. It gives us freedom because God gives us freedom all through his voice to us, his word. And so the psalmist can love and delight in it because it's the voice of his father to him. He can revere and obey it because it's the voice of his awesome God to him. He can trust and find hope in it because it is his God to him. We cannot separate God from his word to us is the way God has chosen to reveal himself to us. This psalm is a song all about the Bible, how wonderful it is, how much he loves it. It's a 15-minute song about the Bible and how wonderful it is and how much he loves it. Now, imagine this morning you turned up and we sung a 15-minute song about how awesome and wonderful the Bible is and how much we love it. Wouldn't that get even more people around the place accusing us of, you worship the Bible instead of God, you bibliotras? But this is not how God's Word thinks. This is God to us. Not the physical book in some weird or mystical way, but the words in their meaning is God speaking to us. Our experience of God, our relationship with God is mediated through His Word. This is how God has given you to know Him, to relate to Him. And it would be such an odd thing to separate God's voice from God as if they were totally separate things. Imagine, yeah, Megan calls on the phone, um, I'm chatting to her, she says she wants to speak to the kids. I yell out, kids, kids, the voice of mum is on the phone. <laughs> the voice of mum is on the phone? Dad's lost it. No, no, I'd say, mum's on the phone. 
Because while not physically present, it is mum to them. Her voice is her. They are really knowing her, relating to her through her voice on the phone. The Bible is God's voice to us. Come with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's just worth seeing this so crisp and clear in the New Testament. One Thessalonians chapter two, verse thirteen. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you believe. You accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God. The word of the living God. And so how you treat God's word is how you treat God. If we neglect it, if we have no time for it, if it sits under a stack of books or on a shelf somewhere, then we neglect God and have no time for him. If we hear it but don't obey it, then we hear God but we don't obey him. If we read it in a dutiful manner but have no love for it, then we are dutiful towards God, but do not love and enjoy him the way that we should, the way we could. If we stand in judgment on it and disagree with it, then we are standing in judgment on the God of the universe and disagreeing with him. If we reshape it because we don't like what it says, then we don't like what God says, and we are reshaping his very words. But if we delight in it and enjoy it and reverence it and honour it and seek to grow in it and obey it and love it, then we are doing those very same things to God. How we treat this book day by day and week by week is how we are treating God. This true, trustworthy, precious, perfect, righteous, eternal, wisdom-giving, liberating, comforting book of God to us. And so my big question now as we seek to apply it is this. How can we get into our heart what is in the psalmist's heart? How can I align my heart more with his? His is beating so strong for the word of God. Mine's flattery and weak. How is it that I can... So that was, that was great, wasn't it? So I can get my heart beating in line with his heart because he's the model of the right heart towards God. Well, there's lots that we can draw in the psalm to help us. Um, for instance, the fact that he both commits to, oh, I commit to loving your word and being obedient to it, but he also prays, Lord, help me be obedient to and love your word. Very helpful, isn't it? I, I resolve to and I ask for God's help because I can't, can't do it on my own. But I just want to focus on one big thing for us to apply it to ourselves, and it's this, meditation. Again and again, the psalmist says that he meditates on God's word. Just one example, verse 97. How I love your teaching, I meditated on it all, I meditated on it all day long. Christian meditation. It's nothing like Eastern meditation. It's nothing like TM meditation or OM meditation. All these meditations are about emptying your mind and, and losing yourself and becoming one with the universe, with everything, with something. Christian meditation is the opposite. It's not about emptying your mind, it's about filling your mind. Filling your mind with the thoughts of God. Filling your mind with God's word and then turning it over and over, chewing on, reflecting deeply as you move throughout your life and your day. 
Two key parts. Filling up, chewing on. Filling up our mind with God's word, or as the psalmist talks about, hiding his word in our heart. How would we do that? How might we go about filling my mind with the word of God so that it's so saturated that I have things to chew on and think about as I go throughout my life? How, how do we go with that personally, personal Bible reading? What, what does your personal Bible reading look like? For some, not doing it at all. That's a fantastic place to be to start. A couple of times a week, a few minutes, and you'll find you develop a habit. Develop a desire, develop a just building up. For others, we recognise it's not what it should be. For others, you're nailing it. Just keep going. Do we ever read the Bible just to enjoy it? Just because we've got a bit of time? And instead of Facebooking or Instagramming or YouTubing or Netflixing, or I just read the Bible because I love it or I want to learn how to love it. Are we taking things from sermons and growth groups and taking them into our mind and carrying them with us as we go? Could we memorise some of the Bible? Um, Hazy said to me this week that William Wilberforce, you know, the English politician um, who did so much, probably more than any man, to um, abolish the transatlantic slave trade, had a 15-minute walk between Parliament and his house. And on that walk, he would recite to himself Psalm 119 because he had memorised it. So there you go. Give that a go. <laughs> or, do, or just one verse. Just one verse. This week, like last week, such a helpful sermon. And, and I just found one verse really stuck out to me and I just took it with me this week. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Now, I may not have got that exactly right, but that's okay. <laughs> I was able to take the word with me and in many circumstances this week, that was a very helpful, soothing, helping, growing word. One verse. <laughs> How can we fill up together? Talked about this a few weeks ago, the washing machine image, the fill cycle, the wash cycle. The fill cycle is particularly the people gifted with the word of God filling up the church with the word through the preaching, through the teaching, through the preparation of materials and hot topics and digging deeper than every chance we can get. Fill up amongst us the word of God so that wash cycle we can speak the truth in love to one another and get the word into all the deep places of each other's lives so that we're filled full with the Word of God, the Word of God dwelling in our midst. So filling up, but then chewing on, actively thinking and turning over things in our, in our minds, like chewing on chewing gum. You're just chewing and chewing, you're getting all that flavour out of the gum, but this gum never gets ratty or hard or diminishes in flavour. In fact, it gets fresher and more vibrant and deeper and the flavours are richer the more you chew on it. And so chew on it by thinking, thinking about, what is this teaching me about God and the world and myself and life? And as you move into situations, apply it to your thinking. What, how does, what am I feeling here? What how does that impact? What am I thinking here? What is that person saying? What am I watching on the TV? Preaching to yourself the truths that you know to be true, the things from God's word, and we can do it anywhere and everywhere. And he talks about meditating on God's word all day long. Now, I don't think he means you're the IT guy writing computer code, but one little part of your brain is compartmentalised off and I'm meditating, I'm thinking about God's word. Or I'm the nurse, nursing but still... No, no, no. A lot of mental work does not leave the capacity to also be thinking about something else. 
Multitasking is multi-distraction. You know that, don't you? Um, no, no, no. It's what happens when there's a lull. What, what happens when other mental activities stop for a bit? Where does your mind go? You have a down moment. You have a moment where you're in the car on your own. There's nothing going on. You're lying on your bed at night. Where does your mind go? Because what we can do is slowly train it so that it goes back to the Word of God, the truths of God, verses we've heard, things that we're learning. We can be like the compass. You turn in different directions and the needle flutters, but it always comes very quickly back to due north. When your mind goes into neutral, does it go back to the Word of God? Could it go back to? Could you train it to? You could train it to. Now, what do you do if you find yourself trying to delight in God's Word, trying to love it, but you just find you aren't? Then I'd encourage you, do it as a duty until it becomes a delight. We live in a broken world. We're broken people. We will not always feel towards God's Word what we should. So pray that God would change your heart, then do it in obedience to Him, a duty, until it becomes a delight until you hunger for it, until you love it. Because that's what appetite is like. You develop a taste by feeding something. Have you ever tried to wean off sugar onto healthy foods? At first, the sugar just is so amazing. I love you, sugar. Never leave me. And, and, and the kale, I think kale's always bad. But you know, the healthy foods you don't, you don't really want. Um, but after a while, what you find is your body adjusts, your tastes start to adjust, you actually start to enjoy the healthy foods. And you go back to sugar and think, oh, yeah, I like a little bit, but not too much. It actually makes me feel a little bit sick now. And instead, you've developed this hunger, this taste for enjoying the healthy food, which you first only ate because you knew it was good for you and of benefit. But now you actually start to enjoy and love it, as well as experience the benefits of it. Because... The Bible is like that for us. We need to develop an, an appetite for it. Remembering, this is the word of the living God to us. This is our relationship with God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for your word. That is life. That is light. That is freedom. Because it is you to us. Please, Father, fuel in our heart love and delight, reverence and obedience, trust and hope towards your word. In Jesus' name, amen.